Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Sabrina Strickland from Hospital for Special Surgeries, and we're going to be discussing a deep dive into the patella, so your kneecap, and we're going to be discussing a variety of different pathologies and things that can go wrong with it. We're going to discuss some different clinical presentation findings from an Alta versus a Baja patella and so much more. Dr. Strickland is a phenomenal doctor and she's very passionate about the patella. She actually co-founded the Hospital for Special Surgeries Patella Femoral Surgical Center. So this is a great episode diving into that and I know you're going to love it. Dr. Strickland, welcome back to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you again. Well, thanks so much for having me. So I think today we're going to talk um, all things patella. And yes. so patella is the kneecap. <laughs> and, you know, sort of to start out with a lot of um, patients um, are first start having patellofemoral um, pain when they're teenagers and they're kind of told, oh, you're a girl, it's just patellofemoral pain. And it's not that it doesn't happen in boys, but it tends to be a little bit more common in girls. And most of the time they're either told, you know, this is normal, don't worry about it. Maybe don't do that sport. Um, and sometimes they're actually truly evaluated. And um, that's ideal because there's lots of different causes of anterior knee pain. And so not all anterior knee pain is actually a patellofemoral pain, pain syndrome. It um, it could be that they have tendonitis. It could be um, their IT bands hurting. And sometimes that can hurt a little bit in the front, even though it's more lateral. But for these true patellar pain, there's different causes of that. And um, one of the causes can be alignment. And so if you see somebody who comes in um, whose knees are a little bit knock knee, their hips are a little bit wider, um, they have some internal rotation of their femur, um, that can really lead to overload of, of the patella and that alone can cause anterior knee pain. And so I think in those patients, physical therapy and sometimes just a, a off the shelf shoe insert, such as a super feed or a product like that can really help because that can sort of improve their alignment really simply. And then doing um, exercises and physical therapy to increase the strength of their hip external rotators and their hip abductors can really make a huge difference. And so, you know, that's sort of like the first category of just <laughs> the anterior knee pain that you see. Um, I see it in all ages, but I certainly see it in teenagers or young adults. Yeah, definitely. And you touched on a lot of great things there. I'm excited to kind of break them all down here. So first off, um, anterior knee pain, as you mentioned, it can come from a lot of different sources. And it's really important to actually get someone to evaluate it and someone to say, here's what I think is going on. Because unfortunately, a lot of people will tell you, oh, just avoid that activity or just take three weeks off. And then the next thing you know, it's back again. Um, so I'd rather see people from the start and get a handle on it than let a vicious cycle build up over and over and over again, because then it's a lot more difficult to treat from both my standpoint and your standpoint. It's a lot easier when we get to it from the start. To that point, like at least in, in New York, you can go direct to a physical therapist. And I think a physical therapist can evaluate how you move and they can evaluate sort of the, the source of the pain, but sometimes, especially if it's not getting better and most states limit how many visits it can be before you actually have to see a doctor, but I don't want to see everybody with anterior knee pain because a lot of them can be treated with, without me. They're, they don't need surgery. They don't need an injection, but once 
you get to the point where you've done some strengthening and, and a physical therapist has evaluated how you move and you've kind of optimized that, if the knee still hurts, that would be a reason that maybe we need to take a deeper dive and figure out what is exactly is causing it. Is it just overload from your alignment or is there actually a cartilage problem that's happening? Um, and, and that often requires at the very least an x-ray, if not an MRI. Right, right. And the alignment piece is certainly an interesting one because some of it can be structural in nature where someone is predisposed to a uh, various Q angle. Maybe they're predisposed to excessive internal rotation of the femur, or maybe it's below. Maybe they have uh, increased foot pronation. They have decreased ankle dorsiflexion mobility for whatever reason, and you can't change that. Um, well, they're, they're likely going to fall into that dynamic valgus position a lot more it can also be functional. So all those deficits I just mentioned, sometimes we can treat that and correct it. But when it's a structural problem, what what would be the best kind of course of action? And I know best is always a subjective thing, but if it's truly a structural thing and you're not able to make any changes functionally, what should that individual look to do? So let's say they have a structural problem. They actually have real valgus or a significantly increased Q angle. So if somebody um, comes in and they've had a long history, long history meaning months, and they've already tried physical therapy and they stand in valgus, the first thing I do is I get an x-ray from their hip to the ankle because I want to see exactly where the weight bearing line falls. So I draw essentially a plumb line from the middle of their hip to the middle of their ankle, and it should run right through the middle of their knee. And so you know, I had a patient today where it's outside the knee joint, meaning they're in so much valgus that, or so knock knee that the weight is outside their knee. That can wear out the lateral aspect of their knee, but it certainly can put a lot of overload on the patella. So that patient potentially is not going to get better with conservative means. They might actually need an osteotomy to straighten their leg. If it's just a Q angle, so it's just a matter of how much um, what, what the angle is between the quad and the tibial tubercle, um, there are, certainly are things that can help that, meaning lateral retinacular stretching, um, strengthening the quad. There have been some studies where they Botox the vastus lateralis to try to really get the VMO. Now, we don't do that in the office. We don't. Really <laughs> have the I, I haven't heard of that one before. That's a new one. It's really interesting because um, we talk about VMO strengthening, but most of the data is you can't actually strengthen the VMO. You have to strengthen the whole quad, but sometimes that can really um, help the way our patella is tracking. But if there's significantly increased Q angle, the way I look at a Q angle is I look at it on MRI and I actually measure how lateralized the tibial tubercle is. And in a patient who has chronic patellofemoral pain or anterior knee pain due to maltracking, they need an osteotomy. I have to move the tibial tubercle over to improve their alignment and some of these patients aren't going to get better unless you actually do that. Right, right. And you bring up an interesting point with the VMO because a lot of people think of that as being the only medial dynamic stabilizer. They're right. That is the main one. But as you mentioned, we can't just strengthen one of the four quad muscles when they all do the same exact thing. They all extend the knee. Um, and at least from my experience, which um, is rather limited compared to yours, um, the I'll, the amount of times I've had better success with actually going after the hip and doing things to lengthen things like a TFL or um, kind of reduce the overall like need for a strong medial stabilizer in the first place 
the better I have uh, results uh, wise. And I think that's largely because of the uh, a lot of people forget about the lateral attachments from the IT band to the lateral aspect of the patella. So if you can reduce the lateral pull, then your need for a strong medial pull goes down. A hundred percent. And so when I was training, so I finished my fellowship in 2002, we, we would do occasionally what's called a lateral release and we'd arthroscopically just release the tissue on the lateral side of the knee. And it didn't work very well because it was just, um, it was just cutting it. Um, we weren't necessarily doing anything to improve the alignment, but there probably was some subset of patients that actually did well. Now, nowadays in 2022, uh, I pretty much never do an, a isolated lateral release. However, if I'm taking care of somebody who has significant lateral maltracking, especially if I'm doing a, t- a tibial tubercle osteotomy to, to improve their alignment, I often do what's called a lateral lengthening, which is a small incision. It's not arthroscopic, but where I can actually release that IT band fascia from the lateral aspect of the patella and then tack it down to the capsule. So it's not leaving this gaping hole, but it's lengthening that tissue so that you don't have that lateral pull. Because you're right, you can try to increase the whole quad strength, but if the lateral side just keeps pulling it pulling it out, it's not going to make a big difference. And so um, not just strengthening the hip, but stretching the whole lateral side, I think is incredibly important. Definitely. And I've always wondered if you're going to do something like a lateral release, how much, how do you know how much to release? Well, you don't. And that's the thing because you kind of cut it or you don't, you can't partially cut it. When you do a lateral lengthening, you release it and then you reattach it. So you kind of sent essentially what you're doing with the lateral lengthening is you're centering the patella and then you're seeing where the tissue lies and you can sort of reattach it in an appropriately lengthened position. So we've really gone away from lateral release and gone to lateral lengthening. But again, lateral lengthening is usually done in the setting of realignment. It's It would be very rare to do an isolated lateral, lateral lengthening. Uh, you mentioned again about the quadriceps strength not being the main thing that, um, you know, would correct something like that malalignment. And I, I went, my mind went back to initially when you threw out the term patellar tendonitis, You know, if we just keep loading the quad, loading the quad, loading the quad on a patella that's already pissed off, for lack of a better way to put it, we're probably not going to make good strides in uh, uh, resolving pain. If anything, we might increase how pissed off the patella and patellar tendon is from repeated quad loading over and over again. Um, So that's something that, you know, as I mentioned, that's something I've kind of shifted away from here personally and more towards the model that we were talking about of more of like a regional interdependence um, kind of approach. And I'll even go as far to say that overall core and pelvic stability can play a role in um, pelvic or in um, in patellofemoral uh, disorders. And there's even a, a clinical prediction rule that um, shows that lumbar spine manipulation can improve patellofemoral outcomes, which can, that, that goes in a whole nother direction, um, but it's just interesting to me how everything is so interconnected. And while we typically think knee pain, look at the muscles of the knee, we really have to look more globally, in my opinion. A hundred percent. And a few years ago, I saw a physical therapist was giving a talk at, at HSS where I work and they were showing a, a somebody walking up is some kind of stair climber and they were either using their quads or using their hamstrings. And so 
that didn't make sense to me until I sort of saw this video, because one of the things, if, if your patella really hurts or the anterior part of your knee hurts, you can sort of avoid your quad and you can use your hip flexors instead. And so you can bring your leg forward with your hip flexors and then just use your hamstrings to bend your knee, which your hamstrings do bend your knee. Um, but that's not the right thing because your, your quad just gets weaker and weaker by doing that. And so, um, you know, a lot of times when, when patients kind of are working on their quad strengthening, they, it hurts their knee and it doesn't really work. And so part of, you know, improving your gait is, is figuring out what you're doing wrong without overloading it. And so if you were trying to make your quad stronger because you had a patellofemoral problem by just doing step downs, you'd probably be miserable because that would just exacerbate the problem. Yes, in isolation, your quad would get stronger, but it overloads your patella. So it's kind of tricky figuring out how to make it stronger without overloading it. And I think um, sort of fixing all the joints around it as best as you can, whether it's a pronated foot with an orthotic or uh, a weak hip by strengthening the hip, it, I think is incredibly important because you can't always fix the knee. And a lot of this comes back to observation. So watching how someone moves and watching how they do functional things that they have to do every single day. Um, and one of the things I feel is often missed in observation is the patella itself is people don't really look at, is it higher than the other? Is it lower than the other? Where is it positioned? And I know that's a huge passion of yours. Um, so what does it mean if, you know, one kneecap is slightly higher than the other, slightly lower than the other? Like, what would that mean from a uh, examination and clinical finding standpoint? Generally, patella alta is how you're born, meaning you're born with your patella high. And when your patella, when you're born with a patella alta or a high patella, first of all, you're much more likely to develop instability because it means that you have to bend your knee more to get the patella into the trochlear groove. So just inherently, it can predispose you to instability. And it can be symmetric. Most people have bilateral patella alta, but certainly sometimes you'll see somebody in the office, you'll just have them sitting on an exam table. And when you look at their knees, they don't look the same. And that can be just because one patella is sitting higher than the other. What else can happen if you have patella alta? So the patella is a pulley. So you pull on your patella with your quad that then pulls on your patellar tendon that pulls on your tibia. And if your patella is high, instead of all that force going through your patella, which is what it's there for, it can preferentially load your fat pad. And it's typically the inferior, um, just inferior to your patella on the lateral side. And you can get what's called fat pad impingement. That can be pretty dis disabling, meaning patients can have a, a lot of anterior knee pain. They, they typically are in their teens or twenties. They'll have all the typical patella symptoms, meaning pain with stairs, pain with jumping, pain with any type of impact, pain with sitting in one position for a long time. And what I get to see, cause I get to get the MRI is the fat pad, which should normally be black on a fat suppressed sequence will show up bright white. And we can measure the sort of um, the rate. Well, it's a ratio between the, the patellar articular surface and the distance to the tibia. And it should be one-to-one. -one. And some of these patients have 1.4, 1.5, meaning it's sitting 40 or 50% higher than it should. And that can be a real problem. And certainly the first step is typically go to PT, see how you're moving, strengthen your quad. But for some of these individuals, the only way to fix it is to actually distalize it, to put the patella where it's supposed to be. And that's a, a different type of tibial tubercle osteotomy. It's one that 
patients typically, at least in my experience, recover from quite quickly, but that's also because I do a lot of them. The way I do it is pretty minimally invasive. I, I would say when you look around the country for a lot of surgeons, that's a, a surgery with a fairly high complication rate, not in my experience, but, um, but it can be a very successful operation. The opposite is just as bad. So patella alta can overload um, the fat pad. You can get patellar tendonitis, but if the patella is too low, that can be equally bad, but it's pretty rare to have Baja or low patella unless you've had surgery. Usually those patients are after uh, BTB ACL surgery or a patellar tendon repair where it scars in too much and their patella ends up being too low. And that can be equally catastrophic or worse. Interesting. So you mentioned um, with the Baja, it's typically after surgery and it's typically, um, you've referenced the bone patellar bone uh, ACL procedure. Uh, I know we talked previously about how you do ACLs and you typically do a hamstring graft would grafts from other locations instead of the patellar tendon, or I'm seeing some quad tendon grafts even now, would a quad tendon graft decrease that patellar Baja chance? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I do either hamstrings or quad tendon almost universally, but um, it's, that would be very unlikely. The, I've seen patella Baja after tibial tubercle osteotomy. I've seen it after a tibial fracture where patient had had significant trauma to the knee. Um, it's one of the reasons that we want patients after any type of surgery to start moving their knee immediately and get their quad working. I had a patient who had a femoral nerve block and had um, nerve damage. And so her quad just really couldn't fire. So the patella kind of fell down and then stayed down. Um, and um, I just saw a patient who had a patellofemoral replacement and that ended up with severe Baja. So there's a lot of different reasons, but most of them involve trauma or surgery um, that results in patella Baja. Interesting. And then going back to the Alta now, I'm sorry, I'm switching gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, on the Alta, you mentioned about the fat pad syndrome, fat pad impingement that can occur um, outside of the MRI uh, findings. Is there any real way to differentiate that from say something else like a patellar tendonitis on a objective examination, or are you more reliant on the subjective findings for that? Or if you couldn't use the MRI, what would you look at? So I think on exam, so patellar tendonitis used to tends to be central proximal patellar tendon tends to be right in the middle of the tendon. So if you're in the office and you're evaluating somebody, they have pain with running and jumping and their tenderness is central proximal patellar tendon, usually patellar tendonitis. For fat pad impingement, it tends to be just the lateral border. So just the inferior lateral aspect of the patella when you're palpating over the lateral patellar tendon or even just lateral to it, that's pretty classic. Patellar tendonitis it doesn't really happen unless you're a runner or a jumper. Um, you'll see it in volleyball. You'll see it in basketball. You see it in runners. If somebody comes in and they're not doing those sports, it's not patellar tendonitis. I see. I saw a patient today, and they're, you know, they they told me, oh, I've had this history of patellar tendonitis. Usually, if it's been going on for years, it's not patellar tendonitis. It's something else. Right, right. And um, the only other population I'll add to that is those post-op ACL patients with the bone patellar bone graft, usually sure. around three or four months when you start all of the jumping, all of the force absorption, the return to run preparation, when you restart that, um, the fact that they're missing a 
third of that patellar tendon in most cases usually causes a little bit of irritation, which can make that all the more fun to work through. Yeah, a hundred percent. One of the reasons I personally don't love the patellar tendon for ACLs. <laughs> right, right. Um, so as you were talking about Alta, you mentioned that can uh, contribute to instability of the patella. And that's something I've actually seen a lot more of lately where I've got people sitting in full extension. I can move their kneecap all over the place. They can, you know, unlock it at like 20, 30 degrees flexion, open pack knee, and I can still move it all over the place. Um, and it, it gets to be kind of concerning for me because it moves a lot more than it should. Uh, so from your side of things, from instability, um, one, how would you measure that objectively? Do you like kind of like a quadrant excursion or how do you like to measure patellar mobility itself? Um, and two, what do you do about a hypermobile patella? So, I mean, a, a lot of patients are just ligamentously, like, especially these alta patients, but are ligamentously lax. So, um, if they come in without a history of instability and have a lot of mobility, I don't get very excited about that. I mean, I may, I'm looking at something else. I might look at fat pad impingement. If they have a history of subluxation or instability, they usually have have apprehension. So when you laterally translate their patella, not only does it move, and you know, I think the quadrants are hard to sort of assess. You know, if a typical normal knee is somewhere around two quadrants, medial or lateral, it's moving a couple centimeters. The whole patella is usually somewhere around. 38 to 45 millimeters. So it's moving two centimeters. That's sort of typical. But if somebody moves and then they don't have an endpoint, that's a little concerning that, but without a history of instability, I don't get too excited about that. But it's more that if you translate them laterally and they start getting nervous, you know, they have an apprehension sign, they're reaching down and grabbing your hand. They, you, I look at their face when I do it. I don't look at their knee. Um, that's a patient who who probably is instability and they probably know they've had instability when they come in to talk to you. Sometimes if it's acute, patients will think they tore their ACL or the trainer thinks they tore their ACL. I put my hand on their knee. I translate their patella a little bit and they're, you know, jumping off the table. That doesn't happen with an ACL tear. I know right then that it's, it's a patella, not, not an ACL. Right, right. Definitely. And that actually takes us perfectly into uh, the talk on MPFL procedures. And that's actually where I first um, got to know about you was you've written some articles and done some YouTube videos on the MPFL. Um, and when I was in school for my uh, doctorate of physical therapy, and I saw my first one, I was like, you know, I need to find out more about this. And you were the first one to show up on Google, believe it or not. Um, but I found your stuff very helpful, by the way, I should a little plug in there for that. Well, thank um, you. <laughs> I mean, when I trained, we didn't do MPFL reconstruction. So, really? you know, everybody's heard of an ACL, but nowadays it's it's becoming more more common. It's still I think there's a lot of technical issues like there were when we started doing ACLs, meaning I see a lot of MPFLs that didn't go go so well. And why is that? Well, you know, we only are good at things we do all the time. So, whereas I do, you know, hundreds of patella surgeries a year. Some people might only do one or two and getting it in the right place. So what is an MPFL? An MPFL is a really wimpy ligament that stabilizes the kneecap. And um, it's not, it's not built to really restrain your um, 
Vitellar translation particularly well. And in most patients, that's okay because if, if you don't have Alta and you're not particularly stretchy, your patella engages in the trochlea and you have bony restraints. But if you don't have particularly good bony restraints, meaning your patella is high or you have trochlear dysplasia, so it's a little bit flat, um, there's you rely a lot more on the MPFL. And so um I think it makes perfect sense because we've been doing ACL reconstruction and we've been doing MCL reconstruction for posterior lateral corner for a long time that we thought maybe we should make a better ligament there. And so a lot of the research has been done on, well, where does the MPFL actually attach? And that's one of the problems is that it's not like one single or double bundle like the ACL. It's not this very, it's not a structure that you see when you're operating like, for example, if you're doing a knee replacement and you cut open the medial side of the knee, you don't see it. It's not like this identifiable band. It's more like a, a more fan-like structure. And so that's part of the reason that we didn't think, I, well, that's my guess, to reconstruct it 20 years ago. And um, as we became more aware that it's really not great to have recurrent patellar instability and we're looking for an answer, um, we started reconstructing this ligament. And so, you know, some of the data has been, well, where's the best place to attachment, attach it? Because it's since it's not this discrete ligament um, or we're not born with a discrete ligament, and basically what's been determined is anywhere on the top 50% of the patella. And in some cases, we actually wrap it around the quad and some people just wrap it around the quad, but where does the, the native ligament attached to it attaches to the superior 50% of the patella. And then there's some fibers that go into the quad. So it's a pretty broad attachment. Um, initially when we were doing it, we were usually using autograft, usually a hamstring. Um, the data says it's about the same to use an allograft versus an autograft. So from the vast majority of patients, I tell them, well, I don't have to weaken your hamstring. I don't have to add an extra scar. So I, I'd personally rather if if I were you, I'd have an allograft. So usually we use donor tissue for it. And then how you attach it to the femur is kind of dealer's choice. I usually use a button the same I use for an ACL, but you can use a, a plastic interference screw and it's just a matter of getting it in the right spot. And when I say I see a lot of MPFLs gone awry, it's because it wasn't attached to the right spot on the femur. I, you you literally answered what was going to be my next question, though. You got ahead of me on um, what you used for the graft. And um, I, I was thinking, too, a lot of those medial knee structures, the MCL historically, but I believe the MPFL as well, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, has the capacity to heal itself to a certain extent following a traumatic sublux or dislocation. Um, but it's going to heal in more of like a lengthened position than it would originally. So you're right. So the MCL usually heals just fine. I mean, if it's a higher grade injury, we tend to brace it. So you're not stretching it while it's healing. Um, the MPFL, because it's an extra articular ligament, unlike your ACL, it's sitting outside the joint. So it certainly can scar back in and heal. So if we see a person who's dislocated once who has good bony alignment, we typically rehab them. It's the patients who have patella alta and um, their patellas and an increased Q angle or what we call an increased TTTG where their tibial tubercle is sitting significant laterally and they're still growing. There's studies that say 70 or 80% of these patients will re-dislocate and we're worried about cartilage injury. So those are the patients we say, you know what, maybe have surgery after one. But many patients can get away without surgery because 
depending on how everything else is aligned, your recurrence rate might only be 10%. And so certainly you don't want to have surgery if there's a 90% chance it's not going to happen again. So yeah, definitely. it's a very varied group that this happens to. I love this conservative first treatment model we keep bringing up over and over again. It's something that you've mentioned, Dr. Uh, Dries, we've had on, he's mentioned it as well. Um, it, it seems rare for me to find a surgeon who is saying, hey, surgery might not always be the best option for you. So right. Well, surgeons, you know, we like to operate, but, you know, certainly, I mean, ideally we have enough patients who actually need surgery that we don't want to operate on people who would have been fine without us. And right. so- uh, Going back to the MPFL, um, from a rehabilitation standpoint, I've seen a variety of different um, protocols or guidelines on what to do, what not to do. And typically, I'm seeing something like avoid flexion past 90 degrees for the first couple of weeks, um, avoid a whole lot of aggressive quadriceps type, uh, type stuff early on in like the first week but get the quad back fairly early. So like week two, three, four usually is when surgeons are typically saying, hey, you need to chase the quad now and get it back quickly post MPFL procedure. Um, do you usually suggest similar guidelines or what are things that you're looking for from a rehab professional post MPFL procedure? So I'm not, I mean, I think our original protocols did limit flexion, but it actually doesn't make any sense because- if you put the MPFL in the right place, it should loosen past 60. So there's actually no reason that we're limiting flexion to 90. So at this point, I don't, I, I encourage flexion as much flexion as possible. Now, if you have a swollen knee, cause you just had surgery, you're not going to flex to 140. but, um, and then as, as far as the quad, how you look at four months is how well you've done as far as getting your quad strength back. So I want the quad firing immediately. I mean, I want quad sets on day one. Um, the only thing I really worry about after an MPFL is that I want the, their effusion to be gone before they ramp things up. And the ligament's going to take three or four months to really remodel at, at, at a minimum. So I don't want them doing anything dangerous. So of course I don't want them cutting or twisting or dancing in in the first few months but as far as quickly getting on a bike and moving the knee and doing um quad strengthening i i don't really think there's any reason to wait right right that makes a lot of sense actually i hadn't thought about the um flexion uh precaution kind of becoming irrelevant in some cases like you mentioned um and i guess the only other thing that came to mind for me is probably not a good idea to do lateral patellar uh, mobilizations on a fresh post MPFL. I can't imagine why, but. Right. That um... wouldn't be the best idea. I mean, <laughs> ideally we've put it in the right place, which means it allows some lateral patellar translation, but just like if you did, we're rehabbing a shoulder instability. You don't want to bring it back into the position of dislocation when you're trying to get that, um, those anterior structures to heal the same thing for a patella, I mean, doing proximal distal mo mobilization is fine, but doing um, lateral translation, probably not a great right. idea. At right. the very it, it becomes a question of why are you even doing what you're doing? Because I've seen cases where some people just kind of automatically do things without thinking about them. And that kind of makes me concerned. Um, I think every action needs to have a purpose, whether that's an exercise, a manual therapy or whatever you're doing. And I would say the same is true surgically as well. Like, you know, before you do something, you probably think 
do I really want to do this? Or even if it's a conservative management, like a injection, I'm guessing you probably say to yourself at some point, hey, this is actually going to help. Hence the reason I'm going to do it. Not just, ah, let's just shoot them full of PRP and see what happens. Well, actually, a patient asked me today who has patellar instability, and she said, oh, a friend asked about PRP. I said, you know, I think PRP is great for early arthritis, or even if you want to try it for more advanced arthritis, I think it's great for chronic tendonitis. Um, for instability, <laughs> PRP doesn't make any sense. I said, you know, it it's not only that it would be a waste of an injection and your money and a, a procedure, but there's, there's no, it doesn't make any sense. Like how would platelet rich plasma that can help promote healing? It's not going to shorten your MPFL. Right. And, and that's, that's sort of what we're asking of, of something like that in that situation. And on the same sort of topic of MPFL, I do see patients occasionally who are recommended to have an MPFL who don't have instability. MPFL is a surgery just for instability. It doesn't work for anterior knee pain. It doesn't work for overload. It doesn't work for maltracking. And MPFL surgery is only for instability. So when a patient's recommended to have an MPFL, but they don't have instability, you know, I get concerned what their doctor was thinking because it, it just like you have to evaluate a patient in clinic and think about whether you're doing patellar um, mobilization when they just had surgery to stabilize their patella. The same thing as the doctor shouldn't be thinking about an MPFL if they don't have instability. It doesn't make any sense. Right, right. And um, I, I guess going back to our point on just overall observation and assessment, um, I, I guess I would say, you know, is there something better uh, out there to accomplish the goal that you um, want to achieve? So, you know, if you have take, you know, rotational instability of the knee, and you're saying MPFL, then I, I guess my question would be, could there be something else like a ALL that could um, potentially help with rotational stability of the knee instead? Yeah. I mean, if it's well, rotational stability that gets into a posterior lateral corner slash ACL. I, I um, might've went too far off the uh, yeah, edge. And, yeah. I mean, that, that can get, um, but generally if it's rotational instability, more like they have femoral torsion, um, then it would be asking a whole lot of that MPFL to bring the patella over because the patella, that's a, a restraint, but it, it's not supposed to pull it over. And so those are the failures. That's a lot of the failures that I see of MPFL, that they needed something more than an MPFL. And, it, and again, I had this conversation today with another patient saying, you know, sometimes the conservative thing is to do surgery. Meaning, if you're malaligned and you're having a recurrent problem, you've already sort of, ex I mean, to me, exhausted conservative treatment, but also the conservative thing isn't to let this keep happening, is to fix your alignment or um, give you a actual restraint so that this doesn't, you know, continue to happen. Right. Do something to kind of stop the vicious cycle, especially if exactly. it continues to happen over and over and over again. And uh, I know you've seen patients and we were just talking about one before we uh, started recording actually of, you know, four year history, five year history of recurrent problems, and it's just not getting addressed. And ultimately we kind of have to put an end to that cycle because, um, you know, I'm, I'm miserable if I feel off for a day, I can't imagine feeling off for four or five years. Yeah. A hundred percent. And like, why, you know, I'm not a hundred percent I, well, I don't know why this was sort of an ignored topic. I mean, back when I trained, 
So we didn't do MPFL. So we would do what's called a medial imbrication or a VMO advancement, where we just kind of put some sutures in the just medial to the patella. We were kind of trying to cinch it together. The problem is, is as I described that sort of fan-like structure, um, it it's wimpy. It's it's not very strong. So you can sort of cinch it up, but it just it worked in some patients. In some patients, they got really stiff and they were worse. And in many patients, it just didn't work. Um, and so it's it's I think the the part of the reason for delay is that you know so many of these kids just stopped doing sports and then they were sort of okay and it didn't happen very often. And so the attitudes like, oh, you're fine. You don't need to do that sport. Um, a little bit of this was Title IX. I mean, Title IX has been a long time now, but um, girls weren't doing a lot of these sports. So it wasn't such an issue. It's much more common in girls than boys. And I think the old generation of orthopedic surgeons were kind of like, oh, you're a girl. It's okay. You don't need to do sports. Um, but a lot of these patients have patellar instability just doing day-to-day -day activities. Like they're not, you know, they're 32 taking care of a baby and they just twist their knee a little bit and their knee get, gives out or they're working at an office and they just kind of shift their weight and their knee gives out. And like, that's no good. You can't have your patella dislocating it, you know, working at a bank. Yeah. That's, that's not normal. Not normal at all. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. As we start to wrap up, I know you also have a strong passion for skiing. Have you seen any interesting cases of skiers and patellar disorders or is that kind of a unmatched well, uh, pairing? No, it's actually pretty common. I mean, one of the things about skiing is you're kind of in a little squat the whole time. You know, you're not skiing with your legs straight. And um, and a lot of skiers have ACL injuries. And so like, what? how does that all interplay? So I see, I mean, my kids all ski raced. I've spent, I mean, I ski raced in high school. You know, it, it's been, um, I have a lot of um, friends and, and patients who are avid skiers and one of the things we see down the road after ACL surgery is you're much more likely to have patellofemoral problems. And some of it we understand, for example, like we talked about, if you had a patellar tendon, you maybe um, had some persistent quad weakness, you overload your patella, they're much more likely to have anterior knee pain. But we also see a lot more, uh, or it's much more common to see anterior cartilage injuries, both trochlear um, cartilage pathology and patellar cartilage pathology. And these, um, so I have a bunch of patients who've um, developed arthritis underneath their kneecaps or a cartilage defect, and it, th that becomes more symptomatic skiing. So the treatment for them can range from everything from a cartilage transplant to a patellofemoral replacement. But generally, patella problems tend to be symptomatic in skiers, less so instability, more so overload and cartilage problems. Right. And um, you mentioned the racing population. I would Imagine if there was something more uh, along the lines of instability where there is some kind of dislocation. I would imagine that would be more on the um, like jumping side of skiing where there's a jump land and more potential for things to go wrong. I, I mean, just thinking about it, I haven't seen a whole lot of skiers with patellar instability. I see much more with cartilage issues or overload in in skiers, but, but what I, I definitely see is the 30 plus year olds who tore their ACL in their teens or early twenties. And now they're 30 with, um, having had ACL surgery and now have a patellofemoral problem. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
Interesting. Well, Dr. Strickland, I think we've covered everything from osteotomy procedures to instability to non-conservative management or conservative management, non-conservative management, and all these different amazing points along the way. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing remarks, or anything that we missed that we didn't touch on? I think my only closing remark is if as a, as a physical therapist or as an athletic trainer or as a patient, it's not normal to have knee swelling. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not normal to have pain. And we've talked about, you know, you shouldn't have chronic pain, period. But it's definitely not normal to have swelling. And once you see swelling, you really need more imaging. I mean, it, it's swelling 100% buys you an MRI in my practice because there's something more going on. This isn't just a little tendonitis or a little bit of overload if there's swelling. So I think swelling should really tip you off that this something more serious is going on. Yeah, definitely. I, I like that point. That's um that. And uh, the other one I found is um, everyone kind of responds differently to pain. So trying to use something other than just palpation. So I like the tuning fork or different things like that to try and get more information about what's going on because palpation can only tell you so much at the end of the day. True. And some people have no tenderness to palpation, but are pretty limited in their activities of daily living. Dr. Strickland, for people who want to find out more about you and your work or check out everything that you're doing up there at HSS in New York City, where can they find out more about you? So there's a ton of information on my website, which is just um, sabrinastrickland.com. But, um, and I co-founded the Patel Femoral Center at HSS. And so we've made a bunch of little videos just explaining different types of surgery. I've done a million um, posts about different things or commenting on articles. And, you know, my goal is just to educate people both, um, you know, I want to educate patients. I want to educate physical therapists. I want to educate other surgeons because ideally we sort of solve this problem. I mean, I'd like this to not become a chronic problem for anybody. Right, right. Put an end to it while we can. I exactly. Like I <laughs> like it. Dr. Strickland, it was great having you on again. Thank you so much for your time, your knowledge, and your expertise. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.